0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We're continuing on in this Advent uh, series that we started last week. And as I mentioned last week, uh, The title of this sermon series for this year's Advent is The Greatest Gift. And it refers to God giving us his son, Jesus Christ, as a man who would walk among us, uh, bearing flesh and blood just like we do. Uh, The prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus saying, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's the greatest gift that God has given us. And so with that in mind, let's just bow for a word of prayer and uh, turn our hearts to this word um, as we prepare our hearts for this year's Christmas. God, help us to grasp how great is the gift that you have given to us. Open our eyes to see a freshness to this Christmas story that we know so well that it's almost gotten to the point of cliche in our hearts and renew within us how desperately we need this Christmas message how much we need a son to be given to us. And so open our eyes to see the faithfulness of your son in the life that he lived when he became a man and walked among us. Open our eyes to understand that, for we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, And so one of the things I said last week is that as much as the Christmas holidays give us this sort of warm feeling um, of images of shepherds and wise men and Babies and a baby in a manger. Um, one of the things I said last week is that we can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus was born into our world and took on flesh and blood, really, essentially, so that He could die on our behalf. And so many of us who've grown up in church were so familiar with the story that it hardly strikes us in terms of its its uh, power. And, and and in all honesty, even the confusion that that message can stir in people, as well as even the offensiveness of that message. And we looked at a bit about the nature of that offensiveness last week. Uh, Why did God have to do this? Why did God have to send his son to earth on our behalf? The Bible tells us that all of us have fallen short of God's holy standard and are all guilty of sin. And even if that's true, though, one of the we played Devil's Advocate a bit, and we said, "But, even if this may be true, um, why couldn't God just forgive us of all of our sins and just look the other way, without the need for a penalty to be paid, without Jesus having to die on a cross on our behalf?" Uh, We looked at this extended quote of Steve Chalk, and I'll just reference one sentence from it. But Steve Chalk says, Why can't God do what he asks us to be able to do? To freely forgive without demanding retribution first. Very provocative question, isn't it? If God asks us to forgive others freely, then why can't God do the same? Why does he demand a penalty? for the wrong that's been done. Well, one answer that we explored last week was that there is, even in the midst of talking about forgiveness, also a place of talking about justice, right? That in the face of all of the evil that we see in our world, there is something inside all of us that says, isn't there some need for justice in all of this? A day of reckoning, a day of judgment, where these crimes must be paid for. These sins must be atoned. And again, we looked at an extended quote by Miroslav Valdes, the theologian, and just uh, a little piece of that quote from last week is, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which i come according to some estimates 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced my villages and cities were destroyed my people shelled day in and out and day out some of them brutalized beyond imagination and i could not imagine god not being angry though i used to complain about the indecency of the idea of god's wrath I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. In other words, the broken heart of God, to see all of the abuse and all of the pain and all of the hurt, really in a sense it is a demand that a loving God must seek justice for the victims who are hurt by all of this evil. There needs to be some accounting, some day of reckoning for all the evil that is perpetrated in our world. I believe when we think about these recent movements like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, it's an expression of this innate sense that all of us have of justice. Don't these men who prey on women have to pay at some point? Isn't there a sense that they need justice? A day of reckoning. And I think at some level, this makes sense to us, that justice is needed to right all the wrongs in the world. God's wrath makes sense when we think about things like Hitler and the Holocaust or genocide in Rwanda that happened in the 90s or even maybe you could argue men like Harvey Weinstein, right? Who took advantage of so many actresses in Hollywood? But then I think there's a kind of other logic that kind of creeps in and that says, yeah, condemn them all. But are the sins that I am guilty of really worthy of that same level of condemnation, right? Because I mean, like, I'm not a Hitler, you know, I never committed genocide. I never even killed a person in my life. Um, and it pulls us into this dilemma. What are the sins that are worthy of condemnation? What are the crimes that are punishable versus the ones that we hope just everyone will just look the other way and pretend it never happened? In other words, how should we decide what kind of sins Demand justice and which ones God should just overlook. How do we decide this? Uh, In Ian McEwen's novel Atonement, uh, which in 2007 was made into a a movie, um, there's this 13 year old young teenage girl who's sort of the main character in this story. Called Brioni, her name is Brioni uh, Talis. And she has a college age older sister named Cecilia, uh, played by Kira Knightley in the film. And so the 13 year old Brioni is looking outside her window when, in the distance, she sees her sister Cecilia with this guy named Robbie. And they're at the fountain in their front yard. And they're just chatting along. But then during the conversation, Robbie accidentally breaks an heirloom vase uh, that's sitting on the, uh, the fountain. And Cecilia does something a little bit unexpected. She disrobes down to her slip and very provocatively jumps into the fountain to retrieve the broken shards of the vase. Clearly, Cecilia has feelings for Robbie. But her younger sister Brioni is looking out from the window, and she's too young to understand fully about romance and, and love and things like this. And so, what she sees unfolding, she is scandalized by. And she naturally thinks that Robbie must have forced her sister to do this, because her sister would never do something this scandalous on her own initiative. Later on, uh, Robbie would write an apology letter for breaking the vase that he wanted to give to Cecilia. And he actually asked Brioni to deliver it to her. But Brioni actually opens the letter and kind of reads the contents. And unfortunately, Robbie wrote a lot of very risque stuff in the letter And so once again, Brionia is scandalized, and she's not thinking very highly of this guy now. And then finally, the thing that sort of breaks the proverbial camel's back, the straw that breaks the camel's back is uh, she actually witnesses um, Robbie and her sister Cecilia being intimate, and she freaks out. And she is convinced that Robbie is a monster and must only want harm for her innocent sister. And so she does something unthinkable. She accuses Robbie falsely of raping a woman. And out of that lie, Robbie will spend almost four years in prison, falsely accused. He is only released from prison on the condition that he will join the British Army and fight as a soldier in World War II. And Cecilia, through this whole ordeal, refuses to believe her younger sister's testimony, unlike the rest of the family that actually believes it. And so she drops out of college, and she becomes a nurse in order to help the war effort. And somehow, against all odds, Robbie and Cecilia make their way back to each other. And after the war, they decide that they're going to get married. And Brioni has now grown up herself and has become a young woman, and she realizes the weight of her sin, her false testimony against this guy. And she finally realizes that Robbie wasn't attacking his sister. They were in love with each other. And so Brioni finds her sister and Robbie and promises to them that she will retract her false testimony to the authorities and clear Robbie's name so that they could have actually a happy life together. This will be the atonement that Brioni will make for the crime of her lie. But as, and I'm sorry, I'm going to give you a spoiler, but (laughs) you've had 15 years to read this book, so if you haven't (laughs) read it, don't kid yourself like you're going to read it, all right? All right, anyway. Um, But as the novel comes to a close, it's the sense that we're going to get a happy ending. After all of the pain and suffering that Cecilia and Robbie had to endure, because of this little girl's lie. But then we get to the end of the novel, and it's the epilogue. And Brioni is now 77 years old. And what we find in the epilogue is that she's actually the author of this novel that we've been reading this whole time. And what she confesses in the epilogue is just devastating. She says, I've been lying to you the entire second half of this novel. And what she says is, Robbie and Cecilia in real life would never get married. In fact, they never found each other. They never found their way back to one another after the war. Instead, the truth, Brioni confesses, is that Cecilia and Robbie were both killed during the war. He as a soldier and she as a nurse. And so the way that this novel ends is for Brioni, there is no restitution possible. The only atonement left for her is to confess her sin through this novel. She cannot right this wrong. There is nothing to fix here. And I share the story of this novel atonement because I want to ask you in light of this story, if you were God, How would you judge Brioni's sin? A 13-year-old girl, still a child, tells a lie trying to protect her older sister from a man that she believes is a predator out to harm her sister. And yet that lie will tear apart a family and destroy two people's lives. And so it raises some perplexing questions, doesn't it? Do her good intentions outweigh the devastating consequences of her sin? I think this is just one example of how complicated it becomes when we try to judge which sins are worthy of judgment and which sins are forgivable. And what the Bible tells us is, to cut across all of that and say this God's holiness demands nothing less than perfection Jesus says in Matthew 5:48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect And what the Bible tells us is that God cannot simply lower his standard of perfection and look the other way when we fall short of that standard that he demands Miroslav Volv says this, true, God did establish moral law for creation, but God is not above moral law. If God were, God could morally do anything God wanted, destroy, lie, humiliate, oppress, whatever. Then what would be the difference between God and the devil? Only that God is stronger than the devil and can divide, define what is good or evil moral law is also not above god if it were god would have to submit to the law and the law would regulate god's behavior the law would then be god's god and god would be the law's servant but that would undo god rob god of divinity god is neither above moral law nor below it rather moral law is an expression of god's very being and when we look at justice through this lens We see that God is just and therefore acts justly. God can't suspend justice any more than God can cease being God. In other words, if God were to abandon justice, he would be abandoning something that is very essential to his nature, who he is in his holiness. And so the Bible puts us into this very difficult dilemma. God will not lower his standard of perfection. And yet none of us meet up to that standard. All of us fall short and are guilty. And so as we looked at last week, therefore God's solution to this problem was to send his son Jesus to become one of us so that he could stand in our place and satisfy God's demand for justice through his own sacrifice. Just like David facing Goliath when all the other Israelites were too afraid to do it, that was foreshadowing Jesus who would stand in our place. Jesus became our champion. Standing in this place of us, through his suffering, he secured our salvation by dying on the cross. This is a theme that was found throughout the Old Testament, which is that one day God would raise a champion. Who would secure salvation for his people because we were incapable of doing it. Look at Isaiah 59. We're just going to look at one example of this champion theme. Isaiah 59, verse 15 and 17 says this. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Here in this passage in Isaiah, God is pictured as a divine warrior, dressing himself for battle as a champion who will win our salvation because there was nobody else who was qualified to do this task so that God saw that there was no justice and there was no one to fix this problem. So it says God armed himself with his armor and won that justice for us. That's why in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, it says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, the New Testament applies the theme of God's champion found in the Old Testament and applies it specifically to Jesus. Saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies about a champion that God was going to send. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 through 17 I'm going to read this in William Lane's translation. William Lane is a, a very masterful New Testament scholar who uh, in his commentary translated the book of Hebrews himself. And this is what he says because I think his wording helps us to be more precise with what the writing of Hebrews chapter 2 says. It's Starting in verse 10, it says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was appropriate that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the champion who secured their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who consecrates human beings and those whom he consecrates are all of one origin, that is why Jesus does not blush to call them his brothers. When he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation, I will praise you. He also says, I will trust them. And furthermore, here am I here am I, and the children whom God has given me. Since the children share a mortal human nature, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and liberate those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For, of course, it is not angels that he takes hold to help, but Abraham's descendants. This means that it was essential for him to be made like these brothers of his in every respect, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation with regard to the sins of the people. Now, that's a very difficult passage. I'm going to grant you that, all right? But in essence, what this writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus became our champion sent by God to secure a salvation that none of us were qualified to do for ourselves. And when he did that, he became like our brother because he became one of us, sharing in our humanity And so then what it says at the very end is that Jesus made propitiation. That's a complicated word, but what that means is that Jesus satisfied the requirements of God for the justice that God demanded. When Jesus laid down his life willingly on the cross, he satisfied God's demand for justice. And so now by dying on the cross, he took our guilt on himself. And exchanges our guilt with his righteousness. In other words, what the Bible tells us is this. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only took our guilt on himself, but he exchanged that guilt with his righteousness given to us. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one: For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me see if I could illustrate it like this. A few centuries back, there was this man named Martin Luther. He was one of the founders of what's come to be known as the Great Protestant Reformation. But back then, he was just a monk in the Catholic Church. And he struggled famously with a guilty conscience. And he did everything that he could to try to please God, fasting for days and going on these long extended prayer vigils and denying himself of any pleasure or any comfort. In fact, one night it's told that he almost froze to death because he refused the comfort of blankets that all the other monks were using, and he almost died because of it. In other words, this guy was beating up his body in every way imaginable, trying to appease God because he had such a guilty conscience for all the sins that he realized he was committing. Luther himself said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, <laughs> I don't know that was a word, but I guess it is, uh, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. But where Luther stood out from all of the other monks was not his prayer vigils or his fasting or his cold nights. It was his confessions. Luther spent hours every day in the confessional, sometimes as long as six hours a day, confessing for the sins he committed the previous day. And it got to the point where everyone in the monastery was so sick of Luther because they were the ones that had to listen to his confession for hours. And his mentor uh, had enough, had reached the end of his patience because he was the one that had to listen to Luther's confessions the most. And this is what he said to Luther. If you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive, like killing your parents or blasphemy or adultery instead of these tiny little sins that you obsess over. And then he said this to Luther. Man, man, God is not angry with you. You are angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Saying He's basically, what is your problem? Why can't you go on with your life like every other monk instead of obsessing over your sin? Eventually, the monks in the, di- in the monastery began to suspect one of two things. Either Luther is spending hours in the confessional because he's trying to get out of studying, and all the other chores that the other monks had to do. Or frankly, secondly, and this was the more probable one, they thought, he was actually losing his mind. They thought he was becoming mentally unstable. But what they couldn't understand about Luther's guilty conscience was that this is what Luther actually thought about the law of God that he was failing to keep. He thought about Luke chapter 10, Verse 27, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And this is what Luther thought. If this is what God demands, he said, There has not been a single moment in my life where I actually feel I obey God fully. Because he says, I do love God, but not with all of my heart and strength. My heart is divided. And he says, I love my neighbor, but never as much as I love myself. It's not even close. I love myself so much more than I love my neighbor. And I'm, I'm sure the other monks felt the same way, but I think the problem is this command seems so utterly unattainable that I don't think the other monks actually lost any sleep over it because they said, listen, God has got to grave it on a curve because no one stands up to this one. But Luther wasn't so sure. It's interesting that psychologists argue that one of the big problems we have as people is that we're too have, we have too sensitive a conscience. We struggle too much with guilt. But actually, what I think what the Bible would say is that our conscience is not strong enough. Because the truth is, all of us are very selective about what we feel guilty about, aren't we? And what Luther's testimony can teach us is this, that truthfully, when we think about what we feel guilty for, it's usually about the bad stuff we do, right? But what Luther realized is, it's not, doesn't even end there. It's about all the good stuff that I'm supposed to do that I never do. Those are what we call sins of omission, right? Right? And says, if God is going to judge me on that, it's game over already. What's the point? I'm dead in the water. And so I would say this. It's not until we realize how utterly impossible it is to meet God's demands through our own strength, that we begin to truly understand why we need God's grace in order to be saved. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 to 6 says this. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence And are boasting in our hope. In other words, Jesus is described as the faithful son. And this is a theme that is so strong in the Gospels, in the New Testament, is that Jesus is the faithful son that nobody else was able to become. And so, when we, there's this huge contrast that is being made in the Gospels between Jesus and the Israelites. And so it's interesting that one of the first ways that we see this come out is when Jesus flees to Egypt. After Jesus is born, God tells his parents, Joseph and Mary, to escape from Herod by going to Egypt. And then it's interesting in Matthew's gospel says in chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son." So it's interesting that just as Israel was in Egypt, Jesus was in Egypt and had to come out of there. And then we see in the story of Jesus' birth, the killing of these Jewish babies. When Jesus was born, Herod ordered the killing of all of the Jewish babies in Bethlehem. And it parallels Pharaoh killing all of the Jewish boys in the days of Moses. And then when Jesus becomes an adult, we see that he is tested in the wilderness for 40 days, which is not random, but it mirrors the 40 years that Israel would wander in the wilderness. But the key distinction is this, Israel failed that test in the wilderness, but Jesus passed the test. And then what is also interesting is that when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he is baptized in the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River was the boundary where the people of Israel reached when they were finished wandering in the wilderness and they needed to enter the promised land. That was the border that they could not cross because they didn't have faith enough to trust in God. It was the Jordan River where they stopped short from entering the promised land. And so it's interesting that when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he is baptized in the Jordan River. Basically saying, I am the fulfillment of where the Israelites failed. And the final comparison I will make is what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus would reveal his glory to his disciples. Matthew 17, verse 1 through 3 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And there's no doubt about it that what this vision is supposed to mirror is God on Mount Sinai when he met the Israelites. But what is interesting about this last parallel is that Jesus does not symbolize the Israelites in this last parallel. Who does he symbolize? He symbolizes God himself, right? Just as the glory of God met Moses on top of Mount Sinai, Jesus showed his glory on this other mountain. And so the message is this, that Jesus was able to be the faithful son because he himself was God, perfect in every way. And so by mirroring the journey of the Israelites through Christ's life, God was declaring this message. Jesus is the faithful son that none of us ever could be. In our hearts, we are too weak to live out the commands of God. And so what the Bible is telling us is something much more powerful than that is that in our weakness, in our inability to satisfy God's demands, Jesus satisfied them on our behalf as our champion. And so all of those sins of omission that we were just talking about, all the good stuff that we should do, that we don't do, that Martha obsessed, Martin Luther obsessed over, what God is saying is that Jesus lived that perfect life. In other words, Jesus loved his Lord, his God, with all of his heart, all of his strength, all of his mind. He loved his neighbor more than himself. Jesus fulfilled the law of God not only by avoiding those sins of commission, But he fulfilled the law of God by also doing all the acts of righteousness that all of us fail to do every day in our life. But here is the crazy thing is that then Jesus credits that to us as if we had done it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I am well pleased. This is God's message. This Son of mine, Jesus, is the only one that has actually lived a life that pleases me. All the rest of you have failed miserably. He alone has succeeded in living the life that I've called you to live. And so as our champion, Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sins, but also lived the perfectly righteous life that we couldn't live, and then he credited to us, into our account, as if we had done those very things. I, I want you to understand what this is really saying. It's saying that when, if you believe in Jesus and have put your trust in him, it means that every time that God looks at you, even when you have failed, even when you make mistakes, even when you willfully rebel, God smiles at you because what he sees is his son when he looks at you. That's an amazing truth, isn't that? Speaking in the 1987 Urbana Missions Conference, Tony Campolo, a sociologist, professor, and pastor, uh, said this in light of this idea that Christ gives us his righteousness. He not only takes our sin upon himself, he not only forgets that we ever sinned in the first place, but he imputes unto us his righteousness. And what that means is that not only does he take our sin upon himself, but he gives us the credit for all the good things he ever did. I can't wait to get to glory. When they open my book, they're going to have under the name Tony Campolo all the good stuff that Jesus ever did. I'm going to be credited for it. It's going to be imputed unto me. Is that wild? I mean, I wish my wife no harm, but I want her there when I arrive. Because I know when they start reading all the good stuff that Jesus ever did, she's going to say, you didn't do all of that. (laughs) And I'm going to say, it's his book. (laughs) I can say this joyfully. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what it's going to say in the book when you're going there with teeth chattering and nervous about what's going to be said about your life, all of the good stuff that Jesus accomplished is credited into your book under your account. And so having the last thing that I'm going to say while I'll wrap up here is this, is having Christ's righteousness is not only a change in our status before God, as wonderful as that is, but it also means that we have been given the power to become more and more like him In our lives, it's not only about being declared innocent when we are guilty, but when it says that Jesus gives us his righteousness, it also means that he gives to us the power to change, the power to become more and more like him in our lives. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, puts it this way Because he himself suffered death, having been put to the test, he is able to help those who are being tested. In other words, when you face temptations in your life, when you're struggling with sin, there is a real power that is available to you because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so I'll just close with this, and then we'll wrap up here is this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 9, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the Christmas message, that the confidence that we have to approach God's throne and face the judgment day comes not from any of our ability to live a good life and to meet God's demands of justice. But to simply say that Christ died for me and I put my trust in him. Let's pray. As we continue to approach the Christmas holiday, I just pray that these are the kind of truths that your soul will be bathed in so that as we reach the Christmas celebration, it would be a genuine celebration in your heart. Because I think the truth is as I think about even many Christians, um, We're not living in the true joy of that message. I think truthfully, what is the center stage of our hearts is often our performance, our accomplishments, what we're able to achieve for God. And the truth is, when we look at that, it is not much ground to stand on, is it? How easy it is to become insecure when we look to our own righteousness as a way of finding confidence before God. The great news of the Christmas message is that Jesus was sent to this earth by the Father to become our champion. And he lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He lived every day loving God with all of his heart, all of his soul. And then in his death, he credited all that he achieved into our account so that we can stand before God with confidence. Realizing that it's not about my performance, but it's because Christ, my champion, has stood in my place. And not only did he pay for the guilt of my sin, but he also credited to me his righteousness as a faithful son. And everything good that he ever did was as if I had done it myself because of his mercy and his grace toward me. Would you just pray in your hearts that these truths would ring true in our heart and by faith, we would believe them and take hold of them so that, as Jesus says, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. May you know the joy of that freedom, of not being weighed down by the guilt of your sin, of not measuring up, of not living the life that you constantly feel guilty that you're supposed to live, and realize that Christ has done all of that in our place and gives it to us freely. (laughs) If only by faith we come to believe in that gift. So let's just pray for a few minutes and then our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response.